it occurs to me that I was just reading this, and it occurs to me I might have just read, read Mark 7. I don't know if I did. <laughs> I copied this off my computer. I'm thinking, oh my goodness. Most of you probably don't know this, but I too am almost like I would say a preschooler as well. I'm a fourth-year student over at the seminary here, and this is all very new to me. And I'm learning a lot. Even in fact, my uncle, who is a Jew, he lives in New York, he's 90 years old, he told my mother the other day, he said, you know, I'm just going to pretend that David is a rabbi. Okay, Uncle Herbie. He's a really amazing guy, actually. This text might be familiar to many of you, and maybe you're hearing it for the first time. I kind of am wondering how you hear it this morning. I've read this a number of times in preparing for the sermon, and it just continues to irritate me and bother me. In fact, one of the pastors that I was reading an article and one of the pastors said, this is a story in many ways so strange and difficult that I think I should have avoided it altogether. (laughs) And I now, as I stand before you, concur. (laughs) So what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer you my first attempt at this scripture. And it's going to be a bit unorthodox. So you'll have to come to me after the service and let me know what you think. So I'm going to back up and read the part of the story that was omitted uh, in the first lectionary reading that you heard, uh, because it is connected to the story. And I think it does point out a bit of the strangeness that this pastor uh, might have been talking about. This is how chapter 15 starts. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. For God said, and he goes on to talk about how the Pharisees break one of their own traditions. This sounds a little strange to me. I'm just wondering if it sounds a little strange to you. I've had conversations like this before in my life, but I think I was in fifth grade. For example, this would be a more modern version. Maybe some of you are familiar with the lines. You find these big, white, wide lines are either white or they're yellow, and you usually find them at stop signs. We call them crosswalks. And I don't know what you do, but I essentially will cross a street wherever I want. And it's rare that I find myself actually in between one of these crosswalks. And I don't know what that is, whether it's a kind of a fantasy of mine that I either own the road or I don't care about the law. One of the two is usually what's happening for me. There is another kind of person who likes to follow closely behind other cars on the freeway. Now, that's not my taste, 
but I know a lot of people that are pretty good at it. So imagine that you're in your car, and you're with one of your close friends, your partner, your wife, your husband, someone close to you. And this person says to you, do you always have to cross the street wherever you want? You know, it's against the law, you know. And you think about it, and you say, and why do you tailgate? It's against the law, you know, and it's against... It violates all your own principles. I was just wondering how those conversations go for you. Because they go horribly for me. Jesus' response, what I hear in this, in this piece is Jesus' response is quite snarky and strange for a man which I consider to be, well, quite holy. So let me see what seems to be true about what Jesus said about hand-washing, because it comes up three, three times in this story. Well, first, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees about confronting him on the question of hand-washing, and he calls them hypocrites. Now, when I first read this, I thought that the Pharisees had a point. But I looked into it, and I discovered it turns out the Pharisees' hand-washing practice was adopted from an ancient temple ritual where priests cleansed their hands and their feet before serving the altar. So it seems that Jesus actually had a reasonable doubt why he should reject this practice because it actually was a Pharisaic tradition and practice unique to themselves. So then Jesus expresses his reasoning to the crowd. He says, again, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles. We might call this sins of the tongue. Or just being nasty to other people. For some reason, the disciples don't get it. And they ask Jesus to repeat the meaning of the parable. Now, I think we heard it. The NRSV says, are you also still without understanding? But another translation says, are you being willfully stupid? It is, I mean, I do think it's almost comical, but certainly ironic that Jesus' main point of his parable seems to be that purity of the heart expresses itself in words and deeds. But at the same time, his words to his disciples seem to be violating his teaching. Then it seems that his entire teaching kind of goes downhill when he meets the Canaanite woman. She is a duly marginalized person. She's a woman and she's a Gentile. And her daughter is conceivably three times marginalized. She's a Gentile. She's a woman and she's demon-possessed. And how does Jesus respond? He first ignores her. He then refuses to offer her help. And then he insults her. He does, in the end, fulfill her wishes, 
but I still find this disturbing. It's as though his apology, maybe, comes at great cost. And also what's amazing to me is that heals, sorry, Jesus heals about 12 other people, some of them groups of people, and then he feeds about 5,000 other people with a few, bread, few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, all before he gets to this Canaanite woman. And right then and there, he seems to reject her need. So when I compare Jesus' teaching about sins of the tongue with the story about the Canaanite woman and her daughter, I see more than just one hypocrite. Maybe the Pharisees were hypocrites, but it appears that Jesus was behaving contrary to his, his own teaching as well. I couldn't get over it, really. And actually, as I stand here, I'm still not really over it, actually. It really irritates me. I mean, the gospel depicts Jesus as a marginalized person himself who stood for the marginalized. Now, I hear you saying, probably those who know a bit more than me, well, wait a minute here, David. Jesus came to minister to the people of Israel, not the Gentiles. It's mentioned earlier in chapter 10. And the Greek word there for dog actually means little dog or house dog. These so-called dogs are not vile and lonely animals depicted as they're depicted in the Old Testament, but they're more like house pets that would have been part of this woman's household. So therefore, this insulting nature of the metaphor is really not evident. Well, I looked at that. I actually looked at it a lot. And I, 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 I think what I concluded is that softening Jesus' tone would render the metaphor ineffective. So Scott Clark was here a few weeks ago, yeah? He was here a few weeks ago. And he talked about how one of the purposes of parable is to disorient and elicit intense feelings from its readers. And a colleague of mine said, you know, it's very much like a Japanese koan. I don't know how many people have heard that word. I had never heard the word before. But it's a paradoxical statement that is designed to break through human kind of analytical, rational thinking in order to get our hearts and allow us to get in touch with our intuitions. Here's an example of a koan. Buddha told a parable in Sutra. A man traveling across a field encountered a tiger. He fled, the tiger after him. Coming to a precipice, he caught hold of the root of a wild vine and swung himself down over the edge. The tiger sniffed at him from above. Trembling, the man looked down to where, far below, another tiger was waiting to eat him. Only the vine sustained him. Now, two mice, one white, one black, little by little started to gnaw away at the vine. The man saw a luscious strawberry near him. 
grasping the vine in one hand. He plucked the strawberry with the other. How sweet it tasted. End of the coin. I find that weird. I want to know what's going on with the mice. I want to know what's going on with the tiger. I want to know, he's going to fall off this cliff. But he is eating a strawberry. Now, it is different than our story. But it does disorient our thinking, I think. It does me. So I think one way of experiencing the story, this Cohen of the Canaanite woman and her daughter, is through our strong feelings about it. What is unexpected is that we know internally, we know through our own internal being how the story is supposed to unfold. It's already in us. We know that marginalized, and we know that our marginalized Jesus, at least this is what we're used to, it's our tradition, that he is on the side of the marginalized and the disenfranchised. The story could be doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. It elicits our strong internal feelings about how we're supposed to be in the world. And who better than our main character of the story, our master wisdom teacher, who violates his own profound teaching of the holy, helps us to see that. I'm proposing that one possible way of understanding the story of the Canaanite woman is to notice that we have an inner knowing within all of us that understands how we're to be in the world. John's Gospel says it this way. On the day that you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you, there just seems to be a dwelling within us, and if we can hear thyself, We've got to be on the right road. I think the world could be a very different experience for everyone if we could tune in more sharply and follow it.